Welcome to episode 285 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. I'm Will Knaus, and with me as always is my co-host and husband, Mr. Jeff Adams. Hello, everybody. Welcome back, Rainbow Romance readers. We are so happy to bring you the Big Gay Fiction Book Club episode for the month of January. And this month's selection is the historical romance, An Unseen Attraction by K.J. Charles. Before we start our deep dive discussion of this month's book, we'd like to quickly thank the members of our Patreon community, including new member Sharonica, as well as Karen, who recently increased her support. It's because of them that we are able to bring you podcast episodes every single week with interviews from your favorite authors and reviews of some of the best books our genre has to offer. On the Big Gay Fiction Podcast Patreon page, members get early access to the book club episodes and author interviews, as well as an exclusive monthly bonus episode that can't be heard anywhere else. Patrons help keep this podcast running and fund the transcription of the author interviews, making sure that this show is accessible to all readers and listeners. If you're in a position to help the podcast grow and would like more information, simply head on over to patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. So one of the great things about starting this whole book club thing is that I get to be 100% selfish and pick the books that I am most interested in. That is so true. I don't think I have personally picked anything that's gone into the book club yet. I think it's all been things that you've been looking at, but I have to say you're batting a thousand here because everything you've picked has been absolutely outstanding. And I'll pat my own back and say that the streak continues this month with K.J. Charles. Now, this is the very first K.J. Charles book that I have ever read. Me too. And I just don't understand why we've never read her before. Yeah, this author has been in the biz for quite some time writing historicals that people are absolutely in love with. And I am very pleased to say that you can add Jeff and myself to the list of diehard fans. So let's jump into An Unseen Attraction. So our two main characters are Clem, he is the proprietor of a lodging house in London, and Roly Green, he is a preserver, or essentially a taxidermist, and he has a shop next door. And after a cup of tea one evening with Mr. Green, Clem manages to ask for an appointment to go see a shop, something that he's been interested in doing for a long time. Roly gives him a personal tour of the shop, and they both seem to be on the same page when he explains to Clem the feel he wants to convey through his work as a preservationist. Can I just say that I love these two from the very beginning? Oh, I know. Exactly. I mean, (laughs) as meet-cutes go in romance, I found this one really interesting, too, because since Roly has been living in the boarding house, Clem and him know each other already, and yet... There are still some nice elements here as that romance starts to bloom over the first time we see them and chapters coming from here. It's a very interesting kind of difference to the meet cute because they've got a history already. Because if I'm not mistaken, Rolly's been living in the house for about eight months now. And so they've been brewing things under the surface already that just get to come to spectacular light here early in the book. The next few evenings are spent discussing a brand new project, a display of birds, and Clem seems so enthusiastic about Rolly's work that they spend their evening tea time talking about that. And it's during one of those cozy evening chats by the fireside that Rolly asks Clem if he'd like to go see a trapeze act performing at a local theater. He has gotten them box seats aware of Clem's discomfort in crowds. Not only is it a cute date to go on to go see the trapeze act, to give these two gentlemen something to do. But also, Rolly's immediate understanding that Clem does have issues in the crowd and to take the extra effort and the cost to get the box seats. 
immediately just made me go, oh, these two really, especially Rolly, really cares for Clem already. Well, yeah, he's very conscious of Clem's wants and needs and how other people might, you know, term Clem's eccentricities. Mm -hmm. It's never stated outright in the book, but it's quite obvious that Clem is on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Exactly. The other thing I like so much about these early chapters, too, and it's something that pulls through a lot of the book, is it has a very cozy feel. There are a number of pages and chapters that happen where it's Clem and Raleigh hanging out, having tea in the parlor and talking. And it was one of the things I just adored so much that we'll talk about as we keep going, too, is just the vibe of this book. It's almost a chamber piece in some ways, especially before we get into the mystery that's going to happen. And I just love it to pieces. I'll just say that up front. Yeah, I forgot to say before we started that there are spoilers ahead. Despite all the cuteness between Rowley and Clem, there is a mystery afoot, which we will be getting to very soon. And it's in the theater in their box that they're able to both admit their attraction to one another. They enjoy the performance, and on the walk home, they discuss what they just saw. And like Jeff just mentioned, Rowley and Clem talk a lot, and it is absolutely wonderful. It's through their very specific dialogue that we get a feel for who they are as people and how they kind of fit together as a couple. It's really masterful how KJ can make so much dialogue so very interesting and so very meaningful. Not all authors can pull that off to have so much dialogue without other things going on. And I just, I loved it, loved it, loved it. They go to Rowley's room and they kiss and it's slow and exploratory and wonderful. And it should lead to some very interesting explorations later on, but they are interrupted by shouts from another lodger. Mr. Lugtrout, who all of the other lodgers don't particularly care for, insists he has been robbed after finding his room is in disarray. Now, this causes a ruckus with the other tenants, but they all return to their rooms since there is no actual proof that anything has been taken. Rowley and Clem make plans for later in the week because Rowley would very much like to pick up where they left off. And it's several more days before they're able to spend any real time together. In his shop, Rowley has been preparing a wolf. And when Clem visits to see the hide, he stays to watch Rowley prepare a client's prize-winning racing pigeon. And this particular section I found really interesting because the description is graphic, but it's not particularly gruesome or yucky. I would agree with that. I mean, because what happens here, not only do we get to be in on the preparation of the bird and a little bit of the wolf, but Rowley actually has Clem do some of this work and the descriptive information is there for how one might go about skinning and preparing to stuff a pigeon. <laughs> and there was something I'd almost call it an innocence that comes through it from the way that Clem actually goes through the procedure and thinks about the procedure that I think keeps it from getting into that yucky and gross kind of area because we're experiencing it through his eyes, which I have to say has helped because Rally is right up behind him, like maneuvering his hands in some cases. So not only are they doing this activity, but there's also quite a bit of close contact involved for the two also. Yeah, we get a lot of information about taxidermy practices during the Regency era, but it's not like K.J. Charles has written a dissertation. When they go out for a meal and return to their rooms, Rowley tries his best to explain that he understands Clem's anxiousness, like the noise that goes on in his head, and then they can take it as slow as Clem needs. They kiss, with Clem setting the pace. 
a slow and sexy exploration, and they bring off one another, each of them in turn. This had one of the sweetest moments for Rolly that was in the entire book for me. Because towards the end of this particular scene where they're together, they're talking a little bit about some of Clem's anxiousness and such. And Raleigh says, I'd like you to have fewer troubles too, but since nobody's asked our opinion on the matter, at least we can try to make each other's path smoother, can't we? I'm like, oh, that is so sweet. (laughs) And if that's not the cornerstone for a a wonderful love story, what is? (laughs) Making each other's path smoother. Now, that horrible lodger that we mentioned earlier, Lugtrap, hasn't been seen in several days. He's gone missing, and Clem is worried. Is it bad that I wasn't sad that he went missing? He's such a terrible, terrible, loudmouth, awful person. Uh, He's a drunk and a lech. But Clem is worried because his brother owns the lodging house, has given Clem the job of looking after things, and one of those things that he is supposed to look after is Lugtrap who is being given free room and board for as long as he wants it. Which it turns out has been several years because Clem has been running the boarding house for quite a while, many years so far. And he has no idea why his brother has decided to give this particular person free lodging. So off he and Rowley go, making the rounds of all of Lugtrout's regular haunts, but no one has seen him. So they stop for a meal, and in conversation, in a roundabout way, they solidify their relationship as dating. And on their return home, Rowley notices someone in the darkness in his shop. The intruder, whoever it was, escapes, and they inspect the shop to see if anything is missing, which it isn't. Though a billy club has been left behind, and there is some evidence that the intruder was searching for something. After some late evening tea and a few goodnight kisses, Rowley heads to bed. But he is later awakened by a woman screaming. Lugtrout's body, bloodied and battered, lays on the stoop of the rooming house. The police arrive and an inspector asks why anyone would want to torture Lugtrout and then dump the body. Why indeed? Mm, Yes, why? Other than the fact that he was alleged a terrible person. (laughs) But that's key because it's more than murder. There is that torture that you mentioned that was done. So clearly, you know, what wasn't found at the boarding house or in the taxidermy shop, they were trying to probably get this information out of Lugtrout. Now, the next day, Clem and Rowley argue, Rowley insisting that Clem tell the police about the arrangement of Clem's brother and the now dead lodger. Clem refuses, and their quarrel causes an at least temporary rift between them. A few days later, Clem's older brother, Edmund, arrives. Edmund is a blustering bully, a grade-A asshole. Mm-hmm. We all know it, but Clem can't see it. Edward is furious at Clem for his inability to carry out his request to watch over Lugtrout and apparently keep him from being murdered. Edmund wants to know if Lugtrout ever confided in Clem, and who specifically did he spend his last days with? Yeah, there was a lot of extra expectation there on Clem. I really, really... As much as I didn't like Lugtrout, I really did not like Edmund. He's he's terrible. He put all this stuff on Clem without even really telling him what the expectation was of, you know, quote unquote, keeping an eye on him. Because why would he know this information and why would it be his business? Rowley comes to Clem to apologize for their earlier fight and tells Clem, since he roomed right next to Lugtrout, he'll give Edmund a few platitudes about the old drunk if it will help smooth things over between Clem and his brother. When they meet, Edmund's primary concern is if Lugtrout told anyone or gave anyone anything in the days before his death, and Rowley can't help him on that account. That night, they have some tea by the fire, and then they make out, which turns into a whole lot more. 
and afterward they're able to more specifically define their relationship, lovers with only one another, and how Rowley prefers when Clem is in charge. This was another thing that I thought KJ did amazingly well, because all of this, figuring out what Rowley wants, what Clem's comfortable with, this whole thing is actually discussed in very much the same way as they would have been hanging out, having tea, talking about something else. It's very proper, it's very mannered, but it's also got this inherent sweetness to it, too. Again, their talking just made me so happy, <laughs> including this chat, because it just really showed who they were. There's such an intense, deep caring and wanting to make sure they're comfortable with whatever's going on. Well, yeah, there's a lot of caring and a lot of respect. Respect. That's a perfect word for it. Absolutely. And, and tenderness, I would say, too. Tenderness and especially the way that Clem navigates the world, there is a lot of explicit consent going on. Mm -hmm. Very true. Because Raleigh, not only does he realize that's important in general, but he doesn't want Clem to be upset or spooked or any of that. He wants Clem to be at ease and be comfortable and be happy, making that path smoother to go back to that other line. After a night out together, Clem asks Raleigh if he would like to go to the gentleman's club where he and his friends hang out. Rowley is surprised that the Jack and Knave is filled with friendly faces and is not like sleazy or debauched or anything like that. It's just a casual hangout where men of a certain persuasion like to socialize. It's a very upscale Regency gay bar. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they return from their enjoyable evening to find trouble in the shop yet again. This time, an arsonist is setting everything ablaze. While Clem runs to go get help, Rowley struggles to douse the flames and fend off an attacker, who clearly has murder on his mind. Rowley fights him, and he and Clem finally manage to tackle him and do some damage, but he escapes. But the shop and everything in it is ruined. Questioned by police, who have zero ideas why any of this is happening, Clem does his best to comfort Rowley. And one of my favorite inspector moments here is actually the inspector saying, most people don't get dead bodies and arson happening around them by accident. You can see why I wonder what's going on here. <laughs> the next evening, they go back to the Jack and Knave. Clem might know someone who can help. Friends Mark and Nathaniel listen as Rowley explains the lug trout incident, as well as the break-in and fire in his shop. They all piece together a theory about lug trout and a document that he must have hidden in a stuffed badger that was comedically mounted to resemble the god Mercury with wings and a toga and a scroll in his little paw. I really wanted a picture of that. It was really ridiculously humorous. <laughs> to be able to picture it in your imagination. And I have to say, I really liked Mark and Nathaniel. I'd like them to have their own little mystery series off on the side somewhere, or if they're involved in the other books in this series, because the things that they came forward with as part of the you know investigation and everything, I really enjoyed the, the glimpses we had of them. Actually, now that you mention it, it would be the perfect time to talk about how An Unseen Attraction is the first book in the Sins of the Cities series. Did you catch that, folks? It's one of the first times, I think, that we've actually done a book one. Numero uno, people! <laughs> we did it with St. Nachos. I'm not, I can't remember right off if we've done it with other books, but you know, we're, <laughs> we're notorious for jumping into the middle of things. So while we're getting the story of Rolly and Clem, we're also meeting their friends and their colleagues, who are all going to have books later in the series. So we will get to see them again. I have to admit, I haven't read the blurbs forward. 
Once again, it's worth mentioning that I think the author has a really wonderful, intriguing way of not only giving us details about the historical setting, but using dialogue and action to give us insights into character. Mark and Nathaniel aren't just like two-dimensional paper cutouts there to like bounce ideas off of. They've got their own lives and careers and their own stories to tell in future books. One of the things I liked about this in particular was that we were having a Regency romance and a historical where the centerpieces of the story weren't dukes and princes and whatnot. We'll discover a little later that Clem, is a t- his, his brother, is a duke. But Clem doesn't have any claim to that title. And so he doesn't have, you know, the, the class and the position that his brother does at all, which is why he runs the boarding house, among other things. But it was really nice just to see what you might call just two regular Joes of the Regency going about and having a romance. I really, really enjoyed that, which is not to say that I don't like my princes and my dukes now. <laughs> Those were really some of my favorite books, too. But this was refreshing in terms of the historicals that I've read. So our band of friends are sitting around a table at the Jack and Nave, and they're trying to, like, suss out what exactly all of this means. They think that the intruder, whom the police suspect is a local criminal named Spim, while I was reading and taking notes for this particular book, I kept writing Spam, but that's not his name. It's Spim. They think Spim came to Lugtrout looking for the document. They kidnapped and tortured him and then came snooping in Rowley's shop. But it turns out the badger had already been sold. And after their brainstorming session back at home, while they're having their usual tea by the fire and having their usual chat, they get into a detailed discussion of Clem's parentage. And long story short is that he is the bastard son of an earl, and Edmund is his half-brother, and the current earl. Oh, sorry. Duke, earl. Some kind of title floating around in there. (laughs) (laughs) They end up sleeping together in Clem's bed, and wake up to a rousing tumble in the sheets. Clem is fully in charge, and says I love you to his perfectly passionate and passive lover. Which is exactly the way that Rolly likes to be considered in that particular role. He likes it a lot. But they have a man to see about a badger. So they go to the buyer's house with the excuse that the mount must be inspected for, you know, taxidermy reasons. Rowley is able to easily replace the scroll in the badger's paw and unrolls what appears to be a page taken from a ledger. It's a record of marriages performed by Lugtrout, who, as it turns out, was a drunk and a lech and a fallen man of the cloth. Clem's brother Edmund is one of the names on the list, but the names and dates don't add up. They take it to Mark and Nathaniel. The evidence points to the proof of this first secret marriage being a valuable tool, perhaps for blackmail. If Edmund was legally still married to his first wife while marrying his second, that would throw the question of the rightful heir to the earldom into question. They need to find out what happened to Edmund's first wife. Clem doesn't want to believe any of this, that his brother could possibly be such a villain. But Rowley needs to know, after all, his life has been threatened and his shop has been destroyed. And it's these differing opinions that lead to their first real fight. And it's it was interesting to watch them fight because they fight in a way that is also quite civil. I mean, they, they walk away from this angry, to be sure. But it's, it's just on a certain level of civility that they're also stalking away angry that... You know, Raleigh can't understand why he sees his brother this way, and Clem can't understand why Raleigh can't just let it be and put his shop back together and move on. 
The other thing I really like that KJ Charles does here, and it kind of harkens back a little bit to some of the taxidermy that we saw in some of the earlier chapters. We learn a lot here about how marriages were recorded, how ledgers moved around, and it's not an overbearing amount of information. And in fact, I quite liked how it all kind of clicked into place to help us understand how this could have happened anyway. And my little data geek self was just like, that is fascinating how this happened in a time, you know, well before computers or central record keeping of many kinds that, you know, we might even know in the 20th century. So yeah, I was kind of intrigued and it just goes to show the level of detail that KJ even worked on to write the book in the first place. Yeah, the brief overarching, you know, summation that I just gave is like nothing compared to the detail that KJ Charles goes into in the story itself. And it is important so that we understand the motives of the characters. And from a historical standpoint, it's also important, all of this processing of data. And the number of places it could be disrupted that would have allowed this to get hidden anyway. I loved it. Well, (laughs) and the reason it's so important is because something like an inherited family title comes with a lot of power and money and responsibility. So official documents like that of a marriage are really important to have in like triplicate and quadruplicate. And there's like all sorts (laughs) of stuff going on, which is why this single page from the ledger is so very important. Mm -hmm. And why people are willing to kill for it. Clem meets with his cousin, Tim, who works as a clerk in the register's office. Tim believes the records were falsified by Lugtrout to hide Edmund's first marriage. He also found the death certificate of Emmeline, wife number one, who had died earlier that year. All evidence points to the fact that Edmund is a bigamist and his son is not the heir to the family title. And this is all too much for Clem to wrap his head around. So what does he do? He goes to his brother asking him to explain everything. Which in general is a terrible idea, but also lets us see the continuing effort that his brother will go to to try to cover all this up and cast anybody but himself as the bad person. It's really frustrating because we as the reader and Rowley know that Edmund is a stone-cold bastard. <laughs> Indeed. But Edmund wants to believe the best in his brother and is willing to believe anything that his brother dishes out, which is a lot of bullshit. Edmund tells him exactly what he wants to hear. And he asks Clem to bring him the paper so that he can destroy it personally. When Clem gets home and tells Rowley about his afternoon chat with Tim and Edmund, they get into another fight. Rowley really struggles to make Clem understand that his brother is an asshole who is lying (laughs) through his teeth and is only looking out for himself. Everyone else can, like, fuck off. Clem, in turn, tries to explain that he is tired of everyone treating him like he is somehow less than, that he's too nice or gullible to be trusted to handle his own affairs. Clem promised his brother that he'd help, and that is what he is going to do. He asks for the document, but Rowley doesn't currently have it. He's given it to Mark to check it against the parish register that is on file. The two of them could not possibly be any farther apart on this particular issue. This is a pretty dark moment for our two heroes, and it doesn't seem like they're ever going to be able to solve this. Oh, you know what? I had faith all along. I mean, there are those books that we read that we talk about on the show where I'm like, I don't see possibly how this is going to resolve itself. There was so much strength in this relationship and their ability to talk that had already been established. I had faith that they were going to be okay. What I wasn't sure of is how they were actually going to resolve the mystery itself. 
but I knew in my heart they were going to be okay. All requirements for an HEA aside, because these two talk, and that's always a good thing. (laughs) Mark returns the next day with the paper and news of some of the research he's done on Emmeline. All evidence points to the fact that Edmund is indeed a villain who married her in haste to ruin a devout young girl. Since the backstory of Edmund and Emmeline is so important to the plot, we get bits and pieces of the details at different points throughout the book. Edmund was essentially a young cad who wanted to get into her pants. So he married Emmeline in a secret ceremony, screwed her, and then dumped her. And he had Lugtrout erase any evidence that had ever happened. But Lugtrout kept that page from the parish register, held on to that evidence for years and years which is why Edmund was letting him stay rent-free in the lodging house. Yeah, nothing like a little long-term blackmail, because this had been going on for years. And uh, Edmund had finally had enough and was trying to get the paper back, it would seem, which is how all of this started to go down. With all of this proof, Rowley and Clem apologized to one another for their stubbornness. Which is a nice little aww moment, because it's a really sweet apology sequence. And they have an in-depth discussion about how each of them fears for the strength of their feelings for one another. That even though they're essentially moving slowly, they're each in their own way scared of how strongly they feel in such a short period of time. Rowley does love Clem and they reunite with a mildly kinky encounter where Rowley keeps his eyes shut. It's kind of an experimental precursor to being blindfolded and Clem has his way with him. And they are very happily reunited. Indeed they are. Like I said, the apology sequence and, and, and going through that discussion of how powerfully they feel for each other is just another really nice example of how they are taking this in a way that shows they really care for each other, that they even have that discussion. We don't see that kind of discussion really play itself out in, in romances of any kind where you're going to talk about that sort of thing. That's usually reserved for internal monologues, and it was really nice to see it just on the page as more discussion between the two characters. Seasonal fog has enveloped London so thick and dark that you can't see two feet in front of you. I can't tell you how gross the entire fog sequence was. I was more grossed out by the fog (laughs) than the taxidermy. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I mean, KJ Charles really goes all out. It is so remarkably descriptive. Yeah, just heinous. I mean, talk about air pollution. Yeah, it's pretty gnarly. Rowley is working in his shop, cleaning things up, when he gets a message that Clem needs to see him straight away in the gardens of the Charter House across the street. And it must be some sort of an emergency, so he slowly and carefully makes his way there, taking his time because getting lost in the fog is a very real possibility. So it's at this point that I do that silly thing where I put a book down. I've read enough books to know what's going to happen. And the Kindle percentage tells me that we are headed into the final act. (laughs) And shit is about to go down. And I was not prepared for that. So I went and I checked my email and tried to mentally prepare myself for what was coming up next. And boy, howdy, is it quite the final act. (laughs) Hang on, because here we go. In the garden, blinded by the thick, murky fog, he is accosted by Spim. With a knife at Rowley's back, he demands the ledger page. He says that he doesn't have it, which is the truth, and that Clem sent it in the post to his brother, which was maybe the truth. Spim leaves him there, a momentary reprieve from the threat of death. And not only has he left him, his glasses have gone wayward as well. And as we know, Rowley doesn't see well without his glasses, fog aside. So he's essentially double blind now between not having his glasses, not being able to find where his glasses are because of the fog, and then there's just all the fog. 
it's a really nasty, precarious situation for him to be in, even though he is just across the street from the boarding house. Clem takes care of Rowley and gets him settled after his brush with a murderous arsonist and does, in fact, end up sending the letter to his brother so it is off the premises. And he locks down the lodging house to stand guard over the man he loves. Somehow Rowley does find his way back and boy, does he turn up as a cold, wet, soggy, shaken mess. Definitely in need of some TLC. And apparently some ginger biscuits that are only made on very special occasion inside the boarding house. Mmm, yummy. (laughs) Indeed. Edmund arrives and he is in a foul mood and says that he needs to talk to Clem in his study. Clem makes them some tea and, standing up to his brother for the very first time in forever, wants a guarantee that Edmund will in fact take care of Spim and make reparations for the property damage of Rowley's shop once he gets the paper back. Never mind that Clem has already sent it off in the post. I adored this moment for Clem standing up to Edmund, which just started very simply with the way that Edmund demanded tea and escalated from there beyond tea into trying to get reparations and forcing Edmund's hand to maybe do the right thing finally. Rowley, who's been listening in in the bedroom next door, warns Clem about drinking the tea. Edmund has poisoned it when Clem was looking away. Spim, as it turns out, was under Edmund's employ all along, obviously. And in one last attempt to get the paper, he has tried to poison his brother. After a scuffle, Edmund pulls a gun. Edmund pulls a gun on them. He is a truly desperate man. But Rowley is able to gain the upper hand with a small penknife that he keeps in his pocket. Our two heroes have essentially showed him who's in charge now. Edmund will get the paper in the mail in a few days. So until then, he can fuck off. (laughs) Yeah, it's quite the showdown between them. I mean, there's the poisoning. There's the threat of Edmund outing their relationship that comes out. He, He really pulls out all the stops between the gun, the poisoning, the threats, everything. And Rowley and Clem are so tight together that they do tell him to fuck off at every turn it's like no we're doing it this way finally alone and none the worse for the day's unbelievable happenings they spend the night in each other's arms that's a little generous of you saying none the worse for where well, <laughs> given the poor how poor raleigh showed up at the house well they're a little battered and bruised but they take care of one another this is definite hurt comfort territory here and it's really sweet And I think the thing that makes this hurt comfort moment interesting is that they are both hurt in their own way. And so they have to, you know, they're both hurt and they both have to comfort each other at the same time. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they do it so well is just glorious. The next morning, Tim arrives at the lodging house with word that Edmund has shot himself. I have to say that their reaction to him shooting himself was humorous to me because they really wanted him to throw himself in the river instead. And they were kind of disappointed at the gunshot approach which I thought was oddly humorous. I mean, it was weird that they were kind of talking about it as Edmund left the house, that maybe he would just, you know, take care of himself and just end it. But then that they were disappointed in the method that he did was just interesting and very much them, I thought, as well. A week later at the Jack and Knave, Clem and Rowley are busy discussing the goings-on with their friends. And when the subject of the earldom comes up, Mark produces the possibility that though Emmeline might now be gone, There might have been more to her story, or more importantly, her children's story. Two of the most unfortunately named kids ever, but yes, more to that story. And thus we get a little bit 
I wouldn't call it a cliffhanger, but a good dose of what happens in the second book in this series to continue kind of this thread of what happens to the earldom. Yeah, Clem and Rowley have managed to fight for their happily ever after. Against all odds, they've succeeded. But there's definitely more story for their friends to explore in future books. And that, my friends, is the story of An Unseen Attraction by K.J. Charles. Absolutely brilliant. I need more K.J. Charles in my life, especially these instances where she's mixing historical and romantic suspense, which is one of my other favorite subgenres out there to look at. This, this just combined everything for me in such a nice, neat package of a couple of my favorite loves. Yeah, needless to say, I loved it as well. And it wasn't really until after I finished reading the book that I realized kind of what sets it apart and makes it so special. On Christmas Day, when Netflix dropped the Bridgerton series, Jeff and I, along with the rest of the world, of course, binged it and loved it. But I realized most, if not all, of the historical fiction that I have read has always been about the upper class. It's about dukes and earls and balls and scandal and as Jeff mentioned earlier, what makes this kind of unique and special is, is that Clem and Rowley are two normal, average, everyday guys. And the story is about them finding love through their everyday existence while dealing with extraordinary circumstances, like a crazy scandal-ridden brother and a murderous arsonist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Little things like that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's... It's really nice to see that kind of normalcy, I guess you'd call it, because so many things do revolve around, if not the upper class doing their thing, the upper lower class split, you know, where you have couples who shouldn't be seen together for whatever reason. These people wouldn't be dining together or going to the music hall together. Clem and, and Raleigh didn't have to navigate that situation at all because they were in the same class, even with Clem having the brother who was... The Earl, I mean, the, the Earldom meant nothing to Clem's life, really, because he was a boarding house proprietor at the end of the day. Well, I think that'll do it for this month's book club episode. We hope that you've enjoyed our discussion of K.J. Charles's An Unseen Attraction. And if you haven't read it yet, we hope that you'll consider giving this book a try. Coming up on Monday in episode 285, Riley Hart joins us. We're excited to announce that Riley's book, Awkward Love, is the February Big Gay Fiction Book Club selection, so you know we're going to be talking with her about that, and we're also going to find out about her forthcoming book, Finding Ian. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, everyone, please stay strong, be safe, and above all else, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. If you want to check out more shows that you are bound to love, go to frolic.media slash podcasts. Our original theme music is composed by Daryl Banner. Mm-hmm.